our team for leading us this morning. That was beautiful, and just, yeah, it's lived, okay? That's lived. I know these people, and that's real for them, and uh, I, I just appreciate the way they lived that. Uh, we have our good friend Lydia Odom here with us today. Let's give it up for Lydia. Lydia is visiting from Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, Charleston is now home for her. Uh, she moved a couple of years ago to be a part of a church plant team that is getting started there in Charleston, and uh, she was the first person to join that team. And uh, we're so proud of Lydia. You know that we've prayed over her multiple times, called her by name here, and continue to pray for her, and it's an honor to have her back in town this week. And uh, we're going to have her uh, read scripture for us this morning. We love you, Lydia. We're so proud of you. Yeah, I just want to say thank you. Um, I'm just so grateful to have a family I can come home to. (laughs) He always does this to me. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) I'm glad I'm not the only one who does this. All right. (laughs) It's not just me, y'all. All All right. All right. The scripture today comes from 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And it says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Amen. Thank you, Lydia. We love you. Let's give it up for Lydia again. Make sure that you uh, talk to Lydia today before she leaves. Give her a hug. Pray for her. Let her know how much you love her, okay? Awesome. Thank you, Lydia. And this time, like, I let her know beforehand. Last time she visited, she didn't warn me that she was coming, and I saw her out there, and I'm like, Lydia's here, everybody, and really embarrassed her, so... This time I made her come up in front of everyone, so it's good. All right. Uh, by a show of hands, and please be honest here, how many of you are expecting me to quote from the new Kanye West album today? <laughs> be honest. All right. Thank you for your faith in me, okay? All right, Caleb, yes. I'm not going to. All right. I was going to until, like, over the past couple of days, my social media feed, like 50% of my social media feed has been middle-aged pastors who are quoting Kanye West. And I'm like, okay, that's past now. All right. Awesome. Uh, Plus, I don't uh, want you guys to judge me because Christians are always the first to judge. So, anyway. I'm kidding. That's actually a quote from the album. All right. So... (laughs) so if you had money on it number one don't bet don't bet money number two you're welcome all right awesome so we are in a series of this is our second week in this series called established and we're talking about what it looks like to be a church that is rooted in prayer, a church that is rooted in prayer. This whole year, we've set aside our 10th year, this milestone year, and dedicated it to focusing in on prayer. 
Prayer has always been essential in everything that we are and everything that we do. It's always been the driving force. It's always been the way that God has opened so many doors for us, the way that he's brought us into deep and intimate relationship with him. But we felt like the Holy Spirit was challenging us and pushing us to take prayer and put it at the center for this year. Not that we're praying for one or two things specifically, but that we're just praying. And we're talking about what it means to be a church rooted in prayer, and we're practicing what it looks like to be a church rooted in prayer. So this series is uh, taken out of the letters of Paul as the Apostle Paul prays over the early church. These are churches that he himself helped get started. And so in that affection that we hear that he has for these churches, we're allowing him to also pray over us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he writes these letters inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we're also being challenged in what it looks like for us to walk in these kinds of prayers and become the kind of people who embody these prayers and actually become the answer to these prayers. Okay, so that's what we're doing here uh, through this series called Established. We believe that awakening prayer is irreducible infrastructure of renewal and revival. That kind of culture is not built overnight. It takes time. It starts slow and small like a seed in the ground. But those seeds become fruit and harvest and forest, as the Apostle Paul says, established and rooted in love. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're longing for. So y'all pray for me and let's pray together as we dive into this next prayer from the Apostle Paul today. As Lydia already read for us, it comes from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And you can hear it begins uh, as he breaks into this moment of worship and this moment of gratitude, this moment of thankfulness in the middle of this letter that he's writing. And so this same thing happened last week. It's like he's making his case. He's building his case through the book of Romans. And then he just interrupts himself and can't hold it back and just bursts into prayer over these believers. And the same thing is happening for us today. So we're going to dig in this, into this together. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Holy Spirit, we always need you. As we said last week, a church without you is like a body without breath. We don't want to just have the shape and the form. We want to be alive. We pray that you would continue to breathe in us, breathe through us, animate us in this world to be the moving, living, breathing body of Jesus. Help us to be broken open in the ways that we need to be broken so that we can be the aroma, the fragrance of Christ in this community. A fragrant offering rising up to God. An aroma that catches people off guard and by surprise and transports them in their minds to another place. Helps them to recognize the reality of your kingdom alive and at work in this community. Help us to be that. See your name we pray. Amen. 
Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. A little bit of background here. Uh, this, this letter of 2 Corinthians is written by Paul. All right, we've pretty much already established that a couple of times. Uh, it says, written by the apostle Paul, and uh, he actually helped he was the one who planted this church, okay? So he's writing back to these people uh, that he's already invested so much in that he's been a part of their development and their discipleship. Uh, and so his heart is deeply invested in these people and in their spiritual growth, in who they are as a church. It's written around the year 55 AD, so a little bit before the book of Romans was written that we talked about uh, last week. Um, and so the purpose of this letter is this uh, Paul is establishing his authentic apostleship to these people, okay? That's why he's writing, and you'll hear him making the case for that all throughout this letter. So the church in Corinth, even though it was planted by Paul, had moved into this place where they were beginning to question his anointing as an apostle. And they, they began to question whether he really was an apostle. And the reason for that is they interpreted his frequent sufferings as a sign of weakness, the frequent sufferings that Paul was going through, Paul being thrown into prison, Paul experiencing all of this suffering for the cause of Christ. Paul is saying, I'm in chains for the cause of Christ. And to him, it, it, that, that shame of being thrown into prison is actually glory to him in this whole great reversal that we always talk about in the upside down, backwards way of the kingdom of God. But these people had been con become convinced that was a sign of Paul's weakness, and maybe they shouldn't listen to Paul anymore. What had happened is these other leaders had come in, and uh, what we get from the background and, and from all context is that these other leaders were challenging uh, Paul's public speaking ability. Like he wasn't as good of a public speaker as they were. There's even some sense there that, that there's something to do with his physical appearance, that they're kind of mocking in this as well. And of course, pointing to all of the hardship that Paul had been through. And they begin to question whether he really has the anointing of God on his life and the favor of God on his life if he's going through all of that. So that's what Paul is up against. And he's writing this letter back to this church to convince them of his authentic apostleship. And in this, you can hear his frustration but you can also hear his affection for these people. He still loves them deeply. It's probably his most emotional letter that we get in the New Testament. So today's prayer is in the context of that, Paul looking at all of this suffering that he's gone through and them questioning him because of that suffering. In the midst of this, he actually breaks out in this prayer of thanksgiving, in this prayer of gratitude, in this prayer of worship, because he understands that this is a sign not of his weakness, but of God's strength. In his weakness, God's strength is being seen. And so it's this gratitude for his victory through his suffering, the victory that Jesus Christ has won for him. So it starts with that first phrase, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. It's this gratitude, thanksgiving, worship. Worship rightly resets our frame of reality because it consistently retells the story of who God is and what God has accomplished, what God has done. And as we rehearse God's greatness and reflect 
on his attributes, on his character, then worship begins to reorient us in this epic narrative of redemption. God continues to write in the world. That's what's happening with Paul in this moment. All of this suffering that he's already been through and these people that he's suffering on behalf of, that he's loving through all of this, and they're beginning to question him. And in the midst of that, he breaks out in this gratitude. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Through all the suffering still, thanks be to God. A life of gratitude even in the midst of all of the brokenness willing to be broken open, willing to be put to shame for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's where Paul is coming from. Then he moves into this next phrase. He says this, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. All right. Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Procession. Now, as we talked last week, it's always really important to try to remember the context in which these letters were written, written to a specific group of people at a specific time in specific places. So all of that context matters and helps us understand what is being said. When we understand the when and the where, then we can understand the what and the why. Okay, And so that's what Paul is, is uh, doing here in this phrase of triumphal procession. We've got to understand the context behind it. When we hear that, we can think of a parade or something like that, and we're like, yeah, I can see myself in that, okay? I can see myself in this triumphal parade following behind Jesus, okay? But to the people who are reading this originally, that phrase, those words, triumphal procession, brought a specific memory to mind. It's like this. What if I said to you, Franklin Street, Rushing the street, bonfire, jumping a bonfire, somebody's bringing a couch, adding to the bonfire. Like, what are you picturing when I say that? National championship. There, who said that? Bonus points. All right, awesome. Kelsey said that, and she's a Duke fan. All right, awesome. Just kidding. <laughs> Awesome. That's good. Thank you, Kelsey. Great. So exactly. So I say those words like to people outside of here. They're like, that sounds like a place I don't want to go. Okay. Don't want to be a part of that. But we're like, yes, we can't wait for that to happen again. Okay. Uh, about every five years or so happens for us. So get, get ready. Okay. Um, but so when Paul says this phrase, triumphal procession, a similar kind of thing like automatically lights up and sparks in the minds of these people, a very specific scene just from these simple words. What they're imagining is this. It was called the Roman triumph. Okay, the Roman triumph. For those of you uh, who know better about this, you can feel free to speak out and correct me if I get anything wrong. I'm looking at you, Andrew Ficklin. All right. All right. So in the Roman triumph, what happens is this. It is a victory parade, but it's a very specific kind of victory parade. It was really reserved for a decisive victory, for an overwhelming kind of victory, and especially a victory in battle that ended up expanding the reach of the Roman Empire, that ended up expanding the boundaries and, and gaining new ground, breaking new 
ground for the Roman Empire. And so when a victory was overwhelming and decisive enough, then the general of that victory would be awarded what was called the triumph. We have some images of that on the screen. There we go. So you can get a sense a little bit from this drawing of how intense this is all throughout the city. It's like the whole city is taken up through this. And it's this parade, it's this procession that moves throughout the city. Everyone has come out, they're lining the streets. And the way it went was this. Uh, so you had the general riding on this chariot, and the general is, is draped in all of this royal-looking clothing, and it was meant to depict, like, the god Jupiter, okay? And so wearing this garland, this crown, uh, to show that triumph. And, and so behind the general would be the general's family, all out there enjoying this moment, like, soaking this in as well. Also in the, in the trail behind the general would be the general's army, those who were a part of the victory. And so they're all marching through this street, the spoils of the victory, the things that were won and, and brought back, this treasure brought back to Rome would have been a part of this parade. And so all of this going on, this celebration, the city is, is just completely enthralled by this. Also, there would be this incense that would be rising up, okay? And we're going to get that illusion in a little bit, too, when he talks about the aroma and the fragrance of life and death, okay? So all of this imagery is rushing into the minds of the people who are reading this letter for the first time or hearing this letter read to them for the first time. And this triumphant imagery, this victorious imagery, imagery. And often this is how we hear this passage talked about. It places us among the ranks of the Roman army, the conquering army, following our general. We were part of winning that battle. The crowd is cheering for him, but at the same time, some of that is landing on us. And we preach that, and we preach that, and we preach that. And that's not what Paul is saying. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. There's another part of the parade that we didn't describe yet. At the front of the parade would have been the captives from the war. Those who were taken into captivity. Many of them would have been of high rank or some of the army who had been defeated. And they were right at the front of the procession. Many of them marching to their deaths as a part of that procession and as a part of that celebration. Paul says he always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So to this group of people who are saying, Paul, you suffered too much for Christ to be a true apostle of Christ. You are too often in chains to be a true one. He says, listen, my life's gonna continue that pattern. I am in chains and I'm in chains for Christ. I am a servant, and I'm a servant for Christ. I am a captive, and I'm a captive for Christ. His life will continue with that pattern. Ultimately, Paul ends up losing his life, not as part of the victory parade for the Roman Empire, but as a captive under the reign of the Roman Empire. And he goes to that shameful death, bringing glory to the kingdom of God. He says, I'm a captive 
I'm a captive. The reality is this, and what Paul tells us throughout the letters that he writes as he preaches the gospel to us, the reality of the gospel, Paul tells us, is we were once the enemies of Christ. We were once the enemies of Christ. Don't automatically thrust yourself into this story and see yourself as part of the conquering army. We had a part in this. We did this too. The victory is his, and it's his alone. The New Testament tells us that we were enemies of Christ, but through his grace, through his mercy, through his love, even through his justice, as he lays down his life for us and pays that penalty and brings us into a reconciled relationship with him through his sacrifice, those who were once enemies have now been called his friends. How beautiful. Don't miss the fact that we were captives. Our sin was overthrown, and we became a captive to his. And in that captivity to him, we have discovered our truest freedom. This is the great reversal, the upside-down, backwards way of the kingdom. It's through the triumph of Christ that we are brought into victory. What was our defeat has become our victory because of Jesus Christ. Today by the way, is Reformation Sunday. All right, anybody grow up in a tradition where you celebrated Reformation Sunday? All right, a few few people, okay? Um, Reformation Sunday marks uh, the day in church history where Martin Luther uh, nails his 95 theses to the door of the church there and this act of defiance against the Catholic Church, against the church, this act of proclaiming Uh, and preaching against the abuses of power that were happening within the church, the injustices that were happening within the church. And one of those twistings, one of those uh, abuses of power was this sense that we could somehow work our way or even worse, pay our way to salvation or pay for the salvation of a family member who has already passed away. And people were preyed upon with this sense. And he spoke out against that, and that began the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, a protest against the the way things were, and pointing back to the heart of the gospel that says we don't pay for our salvation. We don't earn our salvation through our own works or through our own wealth or anything else. We don't. It's through the treasure of heaven being broken open and poured out for us, Jesus Christ laying down his life for us. It's through his triumph that we have victory. That's the heart of the Reformation. The kingdom of God is not the Roman Empire. So this image that we get in our minds and we want to throw ourselves into the army there, the kingdom of God is not the Roman Empire. And Paul is getting at this again. Grace is not a power grab. Grace is not a power grab. And and continuing to this day, there was a a prayer of the Reformation that the church should always be reforming. That the church should always be performing, uh, reforming, not performing, all right? Reforming. (laughs) 
that the church should always be reforming. That was a prayer at the heart of it. And the kingdom of God to this day, the church of Jesus to this day, continues to stand against the abuse of power in the empire. And in that, we are always reforming. We must always be a voice, speaking up for the powerless, speaking truth to power, speaking against abuse of power. That's how the Reformation started, and we have to continue in that. He points us back. Martin Luther attempts to point us back to this bedrock of grace, the heart of the gospel, that it's not through what we do. We do not earn it. It was won for us through the triumph of Jesus Christ. And as we are his captives, we were his enemies, we have now been made his friends because of his grace. This next line here continues to build on this image of the Roman triumph. Let me, uh, one, one second, go back to the pictures of the triumph. There's something that needs to be pointed out there. Uh, keep going through to the one. Um, there's one of these uh, that has a menorah, okay, that has um, this sacred, um, yeah, there it is, okay, part of the temple, and this comes from the Roman Empire's destruction of the temple, okay? Paul is not attempting to say the kingdom of God should be like the Roman Empire. That is not what he's attempting to say. The kingdom of God is the opposite of that and stands in critique of that. So Paul goes on and he says this, um, he always leads us in triumphal procession as captives and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Again, using that imagery from the triumph of the incense rising. And as Paul goes on, he says to some, to those who are living, it is, it is the fragrance of life. To those who are perishing, it is the fragrance of death. And that would have been the occasion as, as people are coming through the city on this parade. To some, that would have been the smell of victory. To others, it's defeat, and it's leading towards their death, those captives who are going to be put to death as a part of that gruesome celebration. And so there's that piece of the imagery of this sense of the incense rising and this aroma and the power that aroma has to spark different things Within us, this uh, Tuesday night at the story, our Bible study that we do um, on Tuesday nights, uh, my friends Brooke and Ryan helped me with my sermon homework. I love when that happens. Thank you, guys. All right. And so we were talking. They start talking about like the power of the sense of smell to connect in this primal way, like connecting to our neural pathways and all this stuff. And I'm like, keep talking. okay? keep going. All right, then some people try to throw stuff in there that wasn't true just to throw me off. So I see that too, okay? Um, but as they were talking about this, it's this, it's this connection, this, this primal connection in us and this power of aroma, of the sense of smell to awaken things in us, to connect with us in deep ways. You guys have all experienced this. Maybe there's a certain aroma that anytime you experience it, it transports you to a different place and time, right? For our family, Sarah's grandmother, all right, Grandma Margaret, um, she made these legendary, like, world-class cinnamon rolls, okay? 
And uh, so Sarah and her brother Brian would talk about growing up, spending summers and holidays at her house and being woken up in the morning by the smell of these cinnamon rolls. And it's like, oh, and when they smell that, it like takes them back to that place. It's a tradition she's carrying on in in our home, too, with cinnamon rolls for the boys. And I'm like, I love that tradition. (laughs) Let's do that one more often. Okay, awesome. Uh, so maybe for you, it, it's that. Uh, one that's weird for me is oftentimes when I'll come in here to the varsity, especially like when church isn't going on and I'm just in here by myself, I'm like, the varsity. <laughs> <All right. laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I see it all around me, but it's with that aroma. I'm like, I am here. Okay. <laughs> I love you, varsity. Okay. Another one that I absolutely love is merits, okay? Any fans of merits in the house? Yes, we love our partners at merits. There's a group of men called Old Man Coffee. They're not really old, but they call themselves that, okay? And they meet for coffee there every Tuesday morning. You guys should jump in on that if you're not a part of that. And um, But when you go to merits, it has this aroma about it that when you step in, it's like, yes, this is merits. But merits actually takes it to a different level because when you leave merits and you go wherever you're going next, the person that you're hanging out with or meeting with, they're like, you've been to merits today, haven't you? (laughs) And the old man coffee guys can attest to this. You can go there Tuesday morning. When you get home on Tuesday night, they're like, yeah, you you were at merits 12 hours ago and it's still it's still on you. Okay. This is the power of aroma, right? You, you smell it, you're like, I know that place. I know that place. It takes you to that place. But I love what we get with that imagery of merits, that it's also the opposite way. It doesn't just take you to that place, but you're taking that place with you. And everywhere you go, people know where you've been. They're like, yeah, you've been there, and it's still on you, all right? It's still on you. That's how it is for us with the kingdom of God. We carry it with us everywhere we go. The aroma stays on us. And we're stepping into new places and they're like, you have just come from somewhere. There's something about you. Where have you been? Where have you been? There's something about living daily, practicing the presence of God as Brother Lawrence, an old monk, wrote about in this life of prayer, living in that daily presence, as we talked about the worship team. We've talked about this together, that the role of a worship pastor isn't to usher us into the presence of God. It's to help us be awake to the presence that is here, that is always around us, that is within us. And that's our role as his people in this world, to awaken the world, to the presence of God. He's here. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. Are you awake to it? So when we pray for awakening, we're not just praying for people around us to be awoken. We're praying for ourselves to wake up first. Are you awake to the presence? Are you living in that constantly, living in that awareness of it? constantly. Uh, We partnered up with our friends at the Daily Tar Heel uh, to take out a full page ad um, 
to celebrate our 10th anniversary a couple of weeks ago. And by partnering with the Daily Tar Heel, I mean, we paid them and they put it in there. Uh, <laughs> it's a good partnership. All right. I love it. <laughs> oh, and so um, we did this to celebrate 10 years of being here and, and of love in action in this community. And this was an intentional thing that we did, all right? Not to take out a full-page ad that's like, hey, everybody, please come to our church. No, that's not what we're trying to do. But instead, it's turning that the other way, and we're saying, hey, everybody, join us in this mission that we're a part of. It's way bigger than we are. Join us in this mission. And we just listed out a few different love missions, a few creative ways that we can become that walking, moving, living fragrance of God in this community. These love missions that catch people by surprise, these experiments in grace. And so we have these out uh, on your way out today. Make sure you pick one of these up. And uh, I challenge you, maybe it's as a, as a small group or as a band or you and some of, of your other friends get some co-conspirators together and check off this bucket list of love missions, okay? It's one of the ways that we can actively and intentionally be the aroma, the fragrance of Christ in this community, the fragrance of life, the fragrance of life to others, that fragrance may look like death. It may seem like we are losing, like we are laying everything down. And we talk about these things of dying to ourselves and being raised up in new life through Jesus Christ. It looks like death to other people. It looks like losing your future to other people. It looks like losing your freedom but we proudly proclaim that we are captives in Christ. And we've discovered freedom in that, the deepest kind of freedom. The poet and, dare I say, prophet and national treasure, Maya Angelou, put it this way. I know why the caged bird sings, right? And his song reaches to the neighboring hill, and his song is a song of freedom. That's who we are. We have a song of freedom in us. And to people around us, it may look like captivity, but we have experienced freedom in Jesus Christ. We've been set free in him. As Paul uses this image of incense and aroma, as we said multiple times, without a doubt, the backdrop for Paul is that context of the Roman Empire. But there's a deeper backdrop for him. And the deepest backdrop is not the Roman Empire, but the kingdom of God. And he's not just thinking about what's happening culturally around him and all of these cities that are under the reign of the Roman Empire. He's also thinking constantly about the stories of Jesus as Jesus lives out for us what it looks like when the kingdom of God is at hand, when the kingdom of God breaks into the world around us. And I can't help but think that Paul's mind must have gone to this place. Our minds go to this place as we read this with the broader biblical and scriptural imagination, with a broader sense of the whole scope of the story. When we think about fragrance and an offering of fragrance that rises up, my mind jumps to the story of the woman who takes that that jar of perfume, of expensive perfume, and breaks it and uses it to anoint the feet of Jesus. 
and this act of worship and this being broken open. And it says the aroma filled the room. And Judas, thinking about the money that he could steal, rebukes her. We could have sold that. We could have made so much money off of that and used it to help the poor, he says, knowing what he had planned to do it. Jesus says, do not rebuke her. This is what worship looks like. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, anywhere that my story gets told, now her story is going to be told too. This is going to be attached to my story from here on out. And it's true. Here we are today, 2,000 years later, and we're telling that story along his. Our lives need to be that. Broken vessels, broken open, wholly given, and given wholly to him. Fragrant offering, rising up to God, an offering to Christ. Our lives broken open to him. When I think about that imagery of that broken open jar and the aroma that flows up out of that and the loss that it seems like at first, the waste almost that it seems like at first, but it's not. That extravagant gift is not a waste. When I think about that broken open jar, I came across recently uh, of these images of uh, this, this pottery uh, that has been put back together, broken pottery that gets put back together. It's a form of Japanese art called kintsugu. kintsugi. Did I get that right? Anybody know? Then I definitely got it right, okay? <laughs> that was exactly right, all right? And uh, it's this Japanese form of art. And the words there mean golden repair. Golden repair. And what was broken is healed and put back together and becomes this work of art. And in the healing of that, these threads of gold that are used to put that pottery back together and it becomes even more stunning, this new emerging work of art. Golden repair. It just captures my heart to think about that. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The reality for us is this, that our sin brought the fracture, but grace is the golden repair. Grace is the golden repair. And out of extravagance of gratitude and worship and thanksgiving, like Paul, we bust into it right in the middle of whatever else we're doing. And we say we want our lives to be that, to be broken open in gratitude, to be an offering, break us open. And let the community around us be filled with this fragrance, this aroma of Christ. Golden repair. That's what I want my life to be. Paul ends with this last line that we're going to look at. The very last line. After all of this beautiful imagery. Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in triumphal procession. The aroma of Christ, awakening the world to the knowledge of God. To some, it's the aroma of life. To others, it's the aroma of death. And then he ends it with this line. But who is up to such a task? Who is sufficient for such a task? Who can do this? Who can do this? And the answer that echoes back is the declaration of Reformation Sunday. Christ alone. Christ alone, grace alone, that is the only way. 
It's only Jesus Christ who is sufficient for this kind of life and for him to live this through us. And as we're captives to him, find our freedom and as we're broken open as this fragrant offering to him he heals us in this golden repair of grace it's beautiful we're about to celebrate communion together one of the phrases one of the names of communion in different traditions it's called different things sometimes communion sometimes the lord's supper sometimes the mass sometimes it's referred to as the eucharist the Eucharist, and that's a word that in its background is this idea of thanksgiving. And isn't that so beautiful that as we break the bread, it's this sense of this broken open thanksgiving. We are filled with gratitude and worship because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. We're filled with that. And as we go to the table today and we celebrate the fact that we are being led as captives in this triumphal procession, our mind continues to go back to the story of Jesus, not just to the Roman Empire imagery, but to the kingdom of God imagery. And as our minds go back to the story of Jesus, we think not of a Roman triumphal procession, but of Jesus's triumphal entry as he's making his way towards the cross. And we think not of the crown of garland or gold on the general's head, but instead a crown of thorns that was placed on the head of Jesus. And in place of a signet ring representing power and authority, we see in the hands of Jesus the nails that pierced him and fastened him to a cross. In place of a royal robe, we see him draped and covered in his own royal blood. And instead of a chariot, his triumph comes on a conquering cross. This is the kingdom of God. It is backwards. It is upside down. And when we become a captive to him, we are swept up in freedom. When we are broken open as fragrant offerings, the aroma of Christ released in this world, we are healed through the golden repair of grace. And this is available for you, for me, for anyone who is longing for that and who opens themselves up to that today. We're going to invite you to come to the table in just a moment. And as you do, I want to challenge you to approach with a sense of Eucharist, with a sense of, but thanks be to God, with a sense of thanksgiving and gratitude and worship because of what Christ alone has accomplished, has accomplished for us. We are his captives, and in that, we are set free. And what looked like his defeat on the cross was his triumph, and we share in that victory with him. Jesus Christ took the bread that was on the table that last night with his disciples, and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken to make you whole. And he took the cup that was on the table and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the salvation of the world. Every time you taste of it, remember what I have done 
and find your redemption in me. If you are hungry for this today, then we invite you to come and to share in the triumph of Christ, one for you.